Welcome to Research Minutes, the CPRE Knowledge Hub's podcast featuring interviews with researchers about the latest work being done in the field to help improve education. In this episode, CPRE Research Specialist Robert Nathanson speaks with Lindsay Page, Assistant Professor of Research Methodology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Education. Listen as we take a deeper look at the Pittsburgh Promise, a unique program that has provided more than $120 million in college scholarships to eligible graduates of Pittsburgh's public schools since 2008. The Promise helped to increase college enrollment among PPS graduates by about five percentage points, and we observed similar impacts on early college persistence. For the latest on education research and policy, subscribe to our podcast at cprehub.org or follow us on Twitter at cprehub. Welcome, Lindsay. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Our pleasure. To get started, we were wondering if you could describe the context for and focus of your study. Sure. This study is really focused on the Pittsburgh public schools. So back in the mid-2000s, the Pittsburgh Promise was founded. The signature donor of the Pittsburgh Promise was the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. The Promise basically set up a scholarship program for students graduating from the Pittsburgh public schools. And the criteria for eligibility have changed over time. Right now, students are eligible for the Promise if they graduate from the Pittsburgh public schools with a GPA of at least 2.5, with an attendance rate of 90% or better. The Promise awards students with funds that they can use to help cover costs all the way up to the full cost of attendance at any accredited public or private institution in the state of Pennsylvania. Some things that I think are important about the Promise are that when the Promise was announced by both the mayor at the time and the superintendent of schools here, there was really a collective set of goals that um, they were hoping to accomplish with this with this policy effort. So they certainly wanted to um, motivate students to be high performing in high school. They wanted to improve rates of college going for students from the Pittsburgh public schools. But they were also looking to stabilize city and school populations. Certainly after the collapse of the steel industry in Pittsburgh, the city population had been declining for a long time. So they saw this as an incentive for folks with school-aged children to move back into the city, and also looking for a mechanism to support workforce development for the, the Pittsburgh population. The Pittsburgh Promise study had some really interesting findings, including on college enrollment and the type of colleges students chose to attend. We were wondering if you could speak to those results. Despite all of the goals of the Promise, our study was really focused on the question of whether the Promise was improving rates of college enrollment, improving rates of early college persistence, and we also wanted to understand what impacts the Promise was having on where students were were deciding to enroll. The Promise helped to increase college enrollment among PPS graduates by about five percentage points. And we observed similar impacts on early college persistence, which is really exciting. That means that students aren't just motivated to enroll in college and then they drop out, but they are enrolling and persisting in college at at a similar rate. And then the other thing that we find is, is when we look at all eligible students, that the Promise had a particularly strong impact on where students are choosing to enroll. So we see that the impact on enrollment in a Pennsylvania school is about twice as large as the impact on college enrollment overall. 
And so that means that the Promise is not only encouraging students to go on to school, but it's encouraging some of the PPS students to remain in the state of Pennsylvania as they pursue their post-secondary degree. And so that may be particularly exciting from the state perspective when we think about workforce development and if people are more likely to stay closer to where they ended up going into college, then this may have workforce development ramifications in the long run. Some of the strongest effects for the college enrollment outcome appear to be for the first phase of the Promise program that you studied, and I was curious what your thoughts are on why that might be. In a way, we might expect really strong effects right when the program is implemented, in part because it's something novel, it's new, and it's exciting, and the implementation of the Promise got a lot of attention locally, as you might expect. In that first year, the scholarship had a value of of $5,000 a year. So we were, you know, across four years, we're talking about an additional $20,000 to students and families to help cover the cost of college. One, One thing to note is in the later years of the program, for students who didn't hit that 2.5 GPA benchmark, but instead students who had a GPA in between 2.0 or 2.5, the promise made available to, to students in that GPA range the opportunity to go to our local community college system for a first year of college to see if they could achieve that academic benchmark in the community college setting, and then they would have the opportunity to transfer. And so in in a way, when we look at the details of the paper, in the first phase, the, the comparison that we're making is eligibility for the full promise compared to eligibility for nothing. And in the later phases, the comparison that we're making is eligibility for the full promise compared to eligibility for what we call the Extension Scholars Program. Part of the reason why we see those big phase one effects is is because of the difference in comparison that we're making. Could you take us through just the years of data that you have, the beginning of the year, and the most recent years of data as well for the Promise that was available to you. The Promise was first available for the graduating class of 2008 from the Pittsburgh Public Schools. And in our study, we look at basically the first five years, the first five cohorts of students who are eligible for the Promise. And then in this particular study, we have one year of data prior to the implementation of the Promise, so the graduating class of 2007, and that class becomes a counterpoint or a point of comparison for us so that we can pull out students who are similar but who weren't, who weren't able to take advantage of the Promise because it did not yet exist. Right. And that's one of the things that I thought was a true strength of the study, that you were leveraging multiple quasi-experimental design approaches to help try to identify the impact of the Promise program on various college outcomes. I was wondering if you could elaborate on the benefit of using two distinct methodological approaches. The first analytic method that we use is a method that we refer to as regression discontinuity. So when we talk about a regression discontinuity, what we're really thinking about is some kind of policy or opportunity where eligibility is defined by some kind of threshold. There's an attendance threshold. Students have to attend 90% of the time or, or more in terms of days of school year, and also a GPA threshold. Students need to achieve a GPA of 2.5 or above. What we found when we were digging into the data from the Pittsburgh Public Schools is really the vast majority of students are hitting that 90% or better attendance mark. And so instead, we focused on the GPA threshold of 2.5. So what regression discontinuity 
allows us to do is focus really narrowly on students who just made that GPA mark, they earned a 2.5 or just a little bit better, or just missed that GPA mark. They, they didn't quite make the 2.5 threshold, but maybe they got pretty close. And what regression discontinuity basically relies on is the idea that students who are right around that threshold are really quite similar, except that they fall on one side or the other and so in our regression discontinuity study, we compare students just above and just below that threshold. The second analytic strategy that we use is a strategy called difference in differences. And so here what we're doing is comparing students across different cohorts. And what's really cool is that in general, when we use these two different analytic strategies, the regression discontinuity and the difference in differences, really the, the punchline or the, the main substantive takeaways are pretty similar in terms of the conclusions that we reach about the impact of the Pittsburgh promise. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found was most exciting. Using multiple analytic approaches and the findings are robust to the two strategies. In general, what we find is that both at that eligibility threshold and then more you know, overall, we find that the promise improve initial college enrollments or immediate college enrollment by about five percentage points. We find similar impacts on an outcome that's a combination of enrollment and persistence. In some cases, that effect is a little bit bigger, which means that it's improving college outcomes, not just on the margin of enrollment, but also on the margin of helping students to maintain enrollment once they're, once they're already at college. And then we find a particularly large effect on enrollment in Pennsylvania schools. And I'll say that there, our difference in differences estimate is larger than our regression discontinuity estimate. And so that says to me that particularly for students who maybe would have gone to college with or without the Pittsburgh Promise, the opportunity to apply those Promise dollars towards their college education had a particularly strong impact on their decision about where to enroll. So, so there were some students who weren't necessarily at that threshold, maybe they were a little higher performing, but they were particularly induced to stay in state for their college education. And that's really interesting because there's a growing focus on the cost of college and student loan debt and the decisions that students make not only on whether they're going to attend school, but where they're going to attend school, the cost of those schools and the outcomes they might expect upon graduation are particularly salient. And so that finding in particular, I think, speaks to the importance of those college decisions. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. I think you're absolutely right that we want to, you know, think about the different margins on which students may be impacted by opportunities like the promise. One other study that I think about in relation to this work is work that was done in Massachusetts by Sarah Cajotes and Josh Goodman. Their study looked at a scholarship program, the John and Abigail Adams Scholarship, that provided students with tuition dollars to go to a public institution in the state of Massachusetts. So to note is that that scholarship opportunity was much more limited than the Pittsburgh Promise. The Pittsburgh Promise, eligible students can use that money to go to a public institution in Pennsylvania, or they could use the money to go to a private institution in Pennsylvania. So the dollars are equally usable at Indiana University of Pennsylvania or University of Pittsburgh or Swarthmore or the University of Pennsylvania. So those dollars are good for any public or private in the state of Pennsylvania. What Sarah and Josh find in Massachusetts is that in some cases, students were motivated by the John and Abigail Adams scholarship 
to use those funds to go to a public institution. And the school that they picked ended up being a school that maybe had lower graduation rates than the school that they would have gone to otherwise. And what they find is a longer run negative effect on college graduation as a result of the scholarship. It's not necessarily the the impact that we would expect when we're giving students more money for college, but I think it has a lot to do with what constraints are put on how those dollars can be used. So I think we want to think really carefully, not only about um, whether students are taking up the money, whether they're enrolling in college, but also what kinds of college decisions they're making. So in your paper, you mentioned several mechanisms that could potentially be driving the impact on college out. Could you discuss some of them? Sure. So in our paper, we hypothesized five different mechanisms that may be driving the the results that we see. I'll just sort of rattle those off. Um, The first mechanism that that we consider is students and families facing actual financial constraints. So if it's it's really the case that for um, students graduating from the Pittsburgh public schools that higher education is unaffordable for them. A second possibility is that even if they can afford higher education, maybe it's the case that they have a perception that college is not affordable. So maybe there's just an information problem. Maybe they think that college is way more expensive than it actually is. It could also be that the promise is motivating improved academic achievement. It could also be that the improved college going over time that we see is driven by an influx into the school district of higher performing students. Maybe college-going rates go up because the the distribution of who's in the schools is is changing over time. And finally, it could be that there's just a greater system-wide attention to college-going, that there's a stronger college-going culture in the district. A lot of those things could be could be going on for you know reasons that we we don't have time to get into right now. We definitely argue in the paper that actual financial constraints that students and families are are facing is at least a piece of the puzzle. And so making additional dollars available to students and families does seem to be making a difference. In your paper, you discuss a cost-effectiveness calculation of the PROMISE program. How should such cost considerations be incorporated into a discussion of your findings and college PROMISE programs more generally? It's a great question. I think part of that question that's always really hard to ask and answer is, well, is it worth it? And could we get a better bang for our buck somewhere else? As far as we went in the paper, what we tried to roughly estimate is what's the return to every dollar of Pittsburgh Promise Scholarship that's spent. And we go through some estimates in terms of thinking about future labor market returns to spending time in college, to getting a college education. We ballpark a a $1.35 return for every dollar invested in the Pittsburgh Promise. So based on, you know, and again, I'll, I'll caveat that as a very back of the envelope calculation. We hope to do more work in the future to get more specific about this. But based on that back of the envelope ca- calculation, we argue that the promise is having or does have a positive rate of return. We're planning work that will allow us to look at um, longer run college persistence and college completion. And we're also hoping to do work where we can bring together data on students from the Pittsburgh Public Schools and look at earnings and labor market behavior so that we can understand, really get a, a finer grained look at what the longer run financial benefits are of receiving support from the Pittsburgh Promise. 
what did you learn about best practices for designing and implementing promise programs that might be of interest to other cities and states currently operating or thinking of launching promise programs of their own? You know, when we think about the impact of scholarships and financial aid, generally speaking, I think this goes beyond the Pittsburgh Promise to other sites as well. There's an importance to having clarity in communicating the opportunity that's available to students. So the more complex the rules of eligibility are, the harder it will be for people to understand their own eligibility for the opportunity and feel confident about going after it. It's not something that we talked about in detail during our conversation, but in the Pittsburgh Promise, the program has changed their eligibility requirements over time. And, you know, we know more anecdotally that 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 has led to some confusion from students about what they're eligible for, whether they're eligible, and so forth. The first thing in terms of best practices is is clarity and consistency in terms of um, what the opportunity is and communicating that opportunity. I think the second piece is, and this relates to something that I touched on before, just being careful about the contingencies in how the, the money is used or how students are able to use the money. So I gave the example already about the scholarship program in Massachusetts where because the funds could only be used at certain institutions, in some cases it led to poor outcomes for students. I think something related to that is whether Promise programs allow students to use funds just for tuition and fees or whether those funds could be used all the way up to the cost of attendance. The Pittsburgh Promise is a last dollar scholarship. So what that says is that students have to complete their FAFSA. They have to receive a financial aid package from their college or university that includes federal Pell Grants, not not loans, but, but Pell Grants and any state grants. And then the promise will be available to make up the difference. The, that difference has been all the way up to cost of attendance. But there was a period where the promise had considered making that difference just up to the cost of tuition. And what we, what we see in looking at the data is that if they were to implement a program like that, for most students from low-income backgrounds, their tuition and fees costs would have been covered by their Pell Grant and then the, the state version of the Pell, which is the FIA grant here in Pennsylvania. There would have been a situation where low-income students would have gotten less in promise support compared to their higher income peers because of the last dollar nature of the scholarship and if the scholarship had been limited to tuition and fees only. But I think those details are really important for thinking about equity, improving college access for those students who really would benefit from the support. Well, Lindsay, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for speaking with us. Thanks so much. To share your thoughts on this discussion, listen to more interviews, and subscribe to our podcasts, visit cprehub.org. We look forward to you joining the conversation.